When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. And use the promo code CULTURE. And by Tracker, a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Make losing things a thing of the past. Get 40% off your first tracker device by going to thetracker.com and using the promo code CULTURE. And by Ticktail, a social shopping marketplace. Go to ticktail.com culture to create your profile and to see a selection of our favorite products. The following podcast contains explicit language. Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Who Brought the Chardonnay edition. It's Wednesday, May 11th, 2016. On today's show, Keanu is the first feature film from the comedy duo Key and Peel. It features their trademark race-destabilizing hilarity. We discuss with Slate staff writer Aisha Harris. And then Slate contributor Leon Nafak set out to master iTunes once and for all and ended up with hives all over his face. What happened? And is iTunes a maddening dinosaur that deserves extinction? I didn't know the hives were going to make it into the intro. (laughs) Twice. It's in the intro to the uh, segment itself as well. Can't wait. And finally, men are forming book clubs. Is this an occasion to transcend gender stereotypes or double down on them? Uh, Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Julia, welcome back. I'm so happy to see you well. Hi. Thank you guys so much for uh, recording without me last week. I was so sad to miss it. Yeah, we survived. Um, And of course, Slate's book and culture critic, Laura Miller, is joining us to fill in for Dana Stevens, who's still on book leave. Laura, welcome. It's great to be here. Julia, before we uh, before we get moving here, do we have some business? Uh, business. Okay. For our Slate Plus segment today, we are going to talk about the Hamilton backlash, backlashes generally, and the relationship between great works of art and great criticism. So if you are a Plus member, you will get to hear that. And if you are not, you can become one at slate.com slash 
Culture Plus. I feel like the Political Gab Fest bored their listeners for like at least four weeks talking about their cool new studios. So I will also say as a bit of business that we are recording for the first time from our new Brooklyn studios in our new Brooklyn office. And it's swank in here. It's exciting. It's posh. Yeah. All right. I think that's all of our business, though. (laughs) All right. Moving on. Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele are better known as Key and Peele. That, of course, was the name of their absolutely smashing Comedy Central sketch show. The two now have their first feature film. Keanu is a shaggy kitty story. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. Its plot is only an excuse to have Key as the bougie Clarence and Peele as the stoner Rel code switch into street mode as the two must pretend to be gangsters in order to retrieve Rel's much-beloved kitty cat, from an L.A. gang lord, that really is the plot of this movie. We're joined by Slate staff writer and Browbeat's chief key and peel correspondent, Aisha Harris. Aisha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, guys. Um, before we dig in and start talking about this movie, why don't, we, uh, why don't we listen to a clip? So seriously, what's going to happen now before we get on this job? It's time for us to all get to know each other a little bit better. We're going to go in a circle, first of all, and everyone's going to say their name and then two things about yourself. For instance... My name is Shark Tank, and uh, I ran hurdles in high school, and I like to hold my gun like this. So that's me. Um, Tectonic. I once shot two dudes with one bullet, and I went to an exclusive early screening of the Blair Witch Project. You did? Yeah. I did not know that. See, before we even knew if it was real or not. Go on. I'm Bud. And I got in the gang banging after I got stabbed by my mom. I'm gonna need two things, huh? And my grandma. But you know, them family reunions get crazy sometimes, man. Thanks for sharing, bro. All right, Aisha, um, uh, that, that was a pretty funny bit from the movie. There are many funny bits within it. Nonetheless, uh, some critics are complaining that this was rather a thin pretense to a film. What'd you make of the movie? Uh, that was definitely my biggest concern going into the film was, you know, we know Keen Peel primarily through a very limited lens in terms of their sketch comedy. Most of their skits on, on their TV show were no more than like five minutes. And so you have that worry, the kind of SNL worry, like, are you going to be able to maintain the, the comedy and the humor throughout? And I think for the most part, it worked, at least for me, being a huge Keen Peel fan. I went into it with those reservations and I was like actually kind of pleasantly surprised. I do think that if you think about the plot too much uh, afterwards, <laughs> then it then it kind of all falls apart. But in the moment for me, uh, especially just kind of many of the skits or, or many of the moments in the film are like callbacks to the TV show, like very explicitly, like they, they, they mentioned Liam Neeson's. There's a scene of them driving in a car, which is kind of reminiscent of the interludes in the last like few seasons of their TV show. And so I really appreciated those moments. But I do also think think that some of the critics are correct to say that like not all of it works and it does sort of it gets a little too wild I think in terms of, of what's going on they try to pack in a lot of stuff but overall in the moment I very much enjoyed it and I think I will definitely go back to watch it again whoa go back to watch it again that is a <laughs> strong endorsement Aisha <laughs> hey I what can I say uh, pick up the missed layers of meaning <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Kim Peele's TV show, but I'm far from as religious or devout a watcher as you, Aisha. And I, my experience of watching the movie was like, hmm, I laughed a few times, but there's not that much to think about in that one. <laughs> what are we going to talk about in our Slate Culture Gap Fest segment? 
<laughs> so, so our listeners can be the judge of whether we figure out something to say. And then when I was prepping for the segment and reading various pieces and, and you know, reading some reviews of it, and in general, I had the response reading the reviews of like, oh, yeah, that was funny. Oh, that was funny, too. And I was like, well, how did I walk out of the movie so disappointed if there are so many bits I can point back to? And I think it's like just a structural problem with taking sketch comedy and turning it into a feature film, no matter how much you love the sketch comics or how interesting they're work is like it's inevitably kind of a rocky transition and even if they deliver a movie with some good laughs in it it's just hard for it to feel like a satisfying overall experience yeah i think it's also that the ending is bad and so you so the last taste you have of it is kind of a a bad aftertaste whereas a lot of the stuff leading up to that is funny and then the ending feels like they're sort of wrapping things up in a kind of lamely heartwarming way which Mm -hmm. is not doesn't feel as sharp as their sketch comedy was but i also think that like if you were to say watch this movie again and that includes the appeal of really possibly the cutest kitten that has ever lived and and, you know there's just not that many kittens in movies and i just really appreciate (laughs) it They aren't, you know? I, I appreciate the work that went into training that kitten. There were like, I think there were like nine kittens. Seven, yeah, seven they, nine they definitely, it definitely looks different at different times. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so that's an, that's an allure, but y- y- would I rather watch that or, or would I rather watch 90 minutes of them doing sketch comedy? And there's just kind of no contest because when you're watching the sketch comedy show, there's such good mm. actors yeah, and there's so many ideas in a series of sketches from them that it just feels like the brilliance of, of these two guys because I, I think they're amazing. It's just turned up to 11 in a series of sketches because you can see yeah. all the different kinds of things they can do, the different kinds of humor, whether it's absurd, whether it's observational, whether it's satirical. And this is one joke that's pretty funny and it's just iterated in a bunch of different ways instead of just this sort of deluge of really smart and funny jokes yeah. and performances. I, I, Laura, I totally agree with that assessment. I, I walked out still thinking that they're geniuses and eager to see what they're going to do in the format going forward. You know, the movie that I compared it to, Aisha, I wonder if, if, if you had seen it, the 21 Jump Street series, which is completely disposable, features two very smart, very canny stars the uh, producing and writing team behind it, very, very smart. I thought what this film could have done was something more like that. Like somehow the 21 Jump Street series makes this move in the direction of connective tissue that makes a movie feel very like a movie, even though it's not really meant to be about real people in real situations. It, it goes just enough in that direction that then the bits, which are what everyone is there to see, really stand out and really land. And then the experience of watching the whole thing still feels at least somewhat cumulative, like you've watched people in a narrative uh, that that culminates somewhere as opposed to going nowhere. Is that a ridiculous comparison? No, I think that's fair. I do think, though, like your idea that they sort of lean on the violence as a crutch, I do think, though, Part of what makes that that final shootout in which Louis Guzman just shows up for the last 15 minutes in the movie, part of what made that so funny is this is a fact, and this is like a thread that goes throughout the entire movie, and it's been written about a lot, is like the fact that this whole movie is kind of like a a critique of like black masculinity in today and, and what that means and what that looks like. And that whole shootout happens over a freaking cat. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like all these men, even not just Key and Peele, but also uh, Method Man's character Cheddar, which I think is supposed to be like a sly reference to his character Cheese in The Wire. Um, <laughs> which I was like, this is great. Um, even uh, Cheddar. <laughs> Cheddar is also like, I want that cat. And then and, and Louis Guzman is like, I want that cat. And so the fact that they're all fighting over this like adorable cat, I think mm-hmm. it's like, to me, that was more of a humor than the violence itself. And it worked for me. I think after that shootout is when it kind of all fell apart. Exactly. um, And and got just sort of... There's like a romance (laughs) kind of subplot that is completely ridiculous. Yeah, they always try to shoehorn those romances. yeah, I mean, I think there's two things going on. I mean, one, you're you're obviously part of what's great about their comedy is their incredibly precise racial satire and commentary. Like, their ability to make different points in different directions, play all kinds of characters, skewer all sorts of stereotypes about black masculinity is, like, one of the most exciting things about what they do. And the movie's definitely playing with those ideas. But there is just a way in which, stretched out over this 90-minute narrative it feels less concentrated. It feels like all of their ideas are kind of floating in solution where as in the sketch show, you know, each one has been like crystallized down into like a little perfect concentrated gem of commentary and humor all together. And so it just feels a bit more diffuse. And even that, I mean, I thought of 21 Jump Street as well as like a successful recent comedy. And I saw a couple other people also compare them to Harold, the Harold and Kumar movies, which are a little bit shaggier in their narrative structure and a little bit loopier but also quite charming. And, you know, with 21 Jump Street, the material, that's not an adaptation of sketch, right? That's like an mm-hmm. ironic remake yeah. of a hokey thing as a comedic thing. And so that somehow, even though the underlying narrative structure of 21 Jump Street is absurd, stupid, trite, and a joke, it does feel like it gives... I don't know. There's like more to build it out of, or maybe it's just that you're 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 not constantly having this comparison to like these little perfect gems of yes. humor. I, I think what it exactly right, Julie. I think what it points up is that sketch comedy and the live action feature length cartoon are two very very different art forms that seem as though they, if you can do one, you ought to be able to do the other. And it was in. I, I mean, I laughed throughout this movie. I would tell people who like Kim Peel to go see it in a second. I would tell them to, like, stream it someday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I would tell them that, too, then. But but there's just one cook missing over the pot, and that's the person who somehow knows how to take all of this and turn it into 90-somewhat cogent minutes. I also wonder if this was, like, meant to be sort of like a Harold and Kumar thing where you watch it while high or like somehow intoxicated (laughs) because then you don't have to think as much about the plot and it will be just as funny if not funny. I know. I should say, I mean, for the control, I think as our listeners know, I often take a flask of wine, a thermos of wine to the movie theaters. But because I was recovering from bronchitis, I did watch this movie more soberly than is my preference. I will say I I was pretty – I had just come from brunch and <laughs> some mimosas were in there. Yeah. I mean, I was already feeling wonderfully lubricated. When I went in, so. yeah. One thing about the absurdity that I do give this movie credit for, though, is that it's like fundamental premise and marketing are based on the notion that it's parodying John Wick, the sort of cult, super violent Keanu Reeves thriller where his puppy is killed and then he goes on a revenge spree, um, which is like, you know, it was a movie that people saw, but like not, it wasn't like, 
Avengers level cultural event and the notion that they're somehow using that as the jumping off point for this very specific goof is narrow and weird and precise Mm -hmm. in a way that feels very key and peel and very charming to me. Right. And then crossing it with the parody of Inside Lewin Davis is just genius. (laughs) (laughs) That movie I would also like to see. All right. Well, Aisha, thank you again for coming on. That was wonderful. Thank you. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Culture Gab Fest is brought to listeners this week by Bowl and Branch. There are many times in your life when you need to loll about in your bed. The more you do it and the better you do it, the healthier and happier you will be. But one of those times is when you simultaneously have a sinus infection and bronchitis and you there's no recourse for you other than antibiotics and watching a middling season of Law & Order SVU intermittently on iTunes between naps, which is what I did for much of last week. But there's nothing like being sick and spending all day abed to remind you what a sacred and important place your bed is and how worthwhile it is to create a nice one that makes you happy. And one of the best ways to make a great bed is to have great sheets. Bowl and Branch has reimagined sheets by cutting out the middlemen, markups, and chain store mentality to deliver luxury sheets for a fraction of the price you'd pay elsewhere. You can get their sheets only in one place, bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality and not department store overhead. Go online to Bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com. The other thing I love about Bowl and Branch is that they let you try their sheets risk-free for 30 nights, which is a rare offer and a great one because everybody has their own unique taste in sheets. If you don't absolutely love them, you can send them back. You have nothing to lose. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order. Sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, plus free shipping. That's bowlandbranch.com, promo code CULTURE for 20% off your entire order. Okay, moving on. Once iTunes was a software for managing music, and if not beloved, it was certainly tolerated, but then it became a kind of command center for managing all kinds of data. And of course, one of its functions is this universal gateway is to funnel you to proprietary Apple products and services. And along the way to that, iTunes became a black hole. So says Leon Nafax, Slate contributor, and now guest on our program. Leon, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Leon, you tried to figure out how iTunes works. You sort of dedicated yourself to this task. We're willing to give it as much time and effort as uh, it demanded. And you ended up with hives all over your face. I what did. happened? Yeah. It's not the first time I've gotten hives, so it, it's not like uh, I can blame it all on Apple. But it does tend to happen when I am nervous, don't know what lies ahead. And that was definitely the case as I tried to untangle the structure of my music library while on the phone with an Apple customer support person who was very nice and did her best, but uh, it was just too confusing. Hmm. Now, Leon, we should say before we go any further, the occasion for your piece was a blog post by someone who claimed that Apple had essentially eaten all of his music or destroyed significant parts of his record collection. Can you summarize what that accusation was? Yeah, so this this guy wrote a blog post uh, that was very widely circulated uh, last week in which he described this tragic thing that happened to him after he installed Apple Music, which is Apple's uh, streaming service that launched about 10 months ago. This guy says that Apple essentially deleted his entire collection of MP3s and WAV files off his computer and replaced them with essentially links to streams. Some of these streams were streams from the Apple Music library. Other streams were from his personal iCloud library. Uh, He wasn't really sure what had happened, but he knew that he had about 120 gigs of music on his hard drive that were no longer there. Uh, And his uh, theory was that Apple had basically 
taken them away from him. Leon, you set out to find out whether or not this was a plausible claim against Apple that it will vaporize you under certain circumstances part of your collection. But you turned that into not only an investigation, but a meditation on what music, collecting music means to us personally, and whether or not iTunes, even when operating optimally, abets that notion of music as part of ourself. Yeah, I mean, actually, was, I was I was thinking about this for quite a while before I read I read that worrying blog post. It was something I pitched to my editor as like a 15th anniversary of iTunes piece originally because I was just so bewildered by why we all still had to use this awful piece of software and why it kept getting worse, it seemed. My longstanding frustration with it stems from how I used to uh, enjoy music, which was sort of as a collector, as, a, as someone who kind of liked having all of his taste, in, if not physical form, then at least in some tangible form, uh, whether that was a shelf of CDs, which is what I had in high school, uh, or a you know library of MP3s, which is sort of what I uh, started having starting in college, and uh, you know my collection of music contained contained various odds and ends. It contained like demos to songs that I liked. It contained you know live recordings. It contained loose tracks that artists had uploaded to their personal websites or had you know leaked out um, through other means that I loved and wanted to remember and wanted to have at my fingertips, iTunes made it really hard to sort of have all that stuff in one place because it's just impossible to know what's happening when you're using it. And when you try to put music on your phone, for example, and you use the sync function, it does things without asking you and it does things that you can't predict. Uh, And ultimately, uh, as many people have experienced, it wipes out your collection. uh, And the only thing that leaves are the albums and songs that you've bought directly from Apple Music. That happened to me like just enough times that I sort of just stopped keeping track of my collection. Like my collection stopped existing. Um, And now I just have like random stuff on my phone and other random stuff on my work computer and other random stuff on my home laptop. And that's sad. So what did you discover about this guy's claim? And when you set out, uh, it sounds like you've experienced an ambient loss of functionality in iTunes that has Mm -hmm. changed your relationship to your music, which is certainly something that I relate to. Did this guy's music get stolen and did you conquer iTunes? I am pretty confident, though I can't be that confident, to be honest with you. I think he must have selected some setting or pressed some checkmark or highlighted some box that he wasn't supposed to and probably had some hand in deleting the music himself without realizing. And that's the really problem. Like Apple doesn't uh, make it clear what's going to happen when you press a button. Yeah. In some ways, he can be wrong and right at the same time, right? Like uh, there were several posts, yours and a few others from um, people, you know, several steps further than you into the cult of Apple worship, it seemed to me in reading their posts. There were were a couple of people who seemed to have adorned like official white Apple hoods of explanation where they're like anointed super fans who then take it as their role to explain Apple and all of its iterations to other people. And several of those kind of self-appointed iTunes experts who, to their credit, acknowledge that they only need to exist because iTunes is so fucking confusing, laid out in, in very clear posts both how this could happen and that it is part of iTunes' very bad user interface design and very unclear dialogue box writing that make the fateful push of the button that would allow you to delete your own music very unclear about what it is, in fact, that you might be doing if you had encountered such a decision point in your user interface, in your user journey through iTunes. And I mean, the thing that's really fascinating to me about this and about 
iTunes generally as the software mess and morass that it is, is obviously Apple is known for and touts itself for being the place that makes products that you don't have to explain that, quote, just work, mm-hmm. right? You take it out of the box, you plug it in, you have a phone, there are your friend's numbers, there's, oh, great, it's synced to your thing, you've got everything you need, And clearly the effort here is to create a system where all the music that you want is available from whatever device you're on. It just works all the time. You know, it sort of makes a set of assumptions about your user preferences in the way that it has done for the years. It sort of bullies us with its assumptions, right? It assumes that you'll get used to not having a keyboard because you would prefer having a powerful microcomputer in your pocket. And some people grumble. But actually, it turns out that we mostly do prefer that. And we mostly have phones like that, people in the smartphone marketplace. In this case, it assumes that you'd rather listen to stuff from the cloud most of the time without taking up a ton of space on all of your different devices. Right. You know, It allows you to buy a cheaper iPhone, for example, because you don't have to buy the biggest one that has the most storage capacity if, right. you, can, if you can use their technology to just stream. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that then leaves out is the set of people who have specific use cases that they care about, their demos or their you know, long collection of live recordings that if they don't manage their permissions and controls exactly right can seem hard to access and can feel hard to access. And and in the user interface design of iTunes, I think you can actually see their inexperience building that kind of like multi-prong user choice-driven product. Like Windows and PCs in general are like clumsy and ugly and awkward because they privilege that sense of user choice. Like mm-hmm. in my personal shift from having a PC to a Mac as a personal computer, I am boggled by media storage on the Mac. Like in the PC, there's just like a folder where all my photos are and they all have a JPEG name and it's very easy to like locate the source file and move it somewhere or do something with it. And I don't know what iPhoto is either. Where way. where That's... are my photos? Well, I can't like I can't find the library. Like it's just the photo thing is even scarier than music because at least the music, you know, theoretically you can stream it from Apple. Like if you're, you lose your photos, like that's it. And I, frankly, I have no idea where my photos are. Like I, I can, I know the buttons I have to press to see them on my screen, but how do I? Right. To find them as source files is really complicated. And every time I've tried to figure it out, I've ended up like deep in some kind of user board comment thread where PC people and Apple people are warring back and forth right. about, you know, like it's just you, you, you lose yourself in these two fundamental philosophies of how computers and, and how computers and software should do your mental work for you or shouldn't. And what we see with iTunes is that the needs we all have around our music collections, specifically for people who relate to them in an identity way, the way you do, they're really, it's really more of a like PC set of needs, right? Like you want to control and manage and understand and see the underpinnings. And Apple's like, it just works. Apple like gives you like a person who comes in and is like, I got this, like, let me take care of it. But that person is like, drunk and really hard to understand and <laughs> and, and and is taking like a, a kickback payment from you know the you know independent services that you're contracting for on the other end i mean it's not a completely innocent fact that they do this uh they there were commercial reasons for funneling as much of your life through the portal of itunes as possible right a lot of the problem with this fundamentally goes back to drm and the different ways that that content is protected by rights holders so that you're not allowed to use or manipulate it in a particular way. And certain kinds of files that are not copy protected are sort of excluded, or you can't get the right metadata on them or any of this. And that seems, you know, often with these things that it ultimately comes down to some DRM based. Yeah, I've I've been told like, since I published my story that, you know, there is sort of an acknowledged 
push on the part of Apple and other other uh, companies that work with the music industry to like get people to stream instead of own. Like for various reasons, it's better for the people for the companies that produce the copyrighted work for you to not feel like it's yours. And they're doing it with this software that was originally designed to sort of hold so many different kinds of content, you know, and even now, you know, I don't have a big music library like you do, but I have a lot of ebooks. And bizarrely, I can only buy an ebook from or I can only load an ebook into my library through the iBooks app. But then if I want to sync that with my my iPad. You're going to give me hives again right now. ITunes, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I have all of these methods to strip all the DRM out of the various, you know, because I prefer to use the, the iBooks app. But still, the syncing, I mean, I, I actually used to be kind of a sync ninja before they had the podcast app. I had all these smart playlists, and then I would go in and edit the metadata on files so that I could get, you know, exactly the right way. And I just, I feel like it's like that I used to be able to speak Mandarin. And then like, I stopped for like three years, and it's just gone. Like I go, I I used to know how to use it, use iTunes really effectively. And now I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on here. But it used to be that you would you could put PDFs in iTunes, and that's just ridiculous. It was just like like a huge barn full of junk. And the whole point of it was you could get all of your junk there. And now they're trying to turn it into a completely different thing. And it's in some sort of weird stage in between. Do you guys think that the streaming model, I mean, imagine a world, this sounds like a movie trailer for a really bad movie. <laughs> but uh, Suppose that you take the specific kludginess and cruddiness of Apple Music out of the question. Supposing that you had a streaming service for which you could pay a nice, fair to artists, but reasonable to the economics of music listeners, annual fee. It would fairly distribute that fee among artists in some way that, that you as a creative person could feel excited about. And every bit of music that was ever made was on there. The weird mixtapes, the strange live bits, anything anybody, I mean, basically old Napster, right? Anything anybody ever uploaded was there to be streamed. And then it had good data for tracking what you listened to. Like you could find a way to see what your favorites were, what you listened to the most, and and good kind of technology around suggesting things for you to try that you hadn't tried based on what other people who had your history liked or whatever the heck their algorithms were. Couldn't that be a satisfying way to listen to music? Like, couldn't you have a musical identity and a sense of a relationship to your collection in the streaming age if we had a different vehicle through which to stream music? Yeah, that sounds great. As long as there's no syncing, that, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the piece is Apple Destroyed My Will to Collect Music. It's by Leon Nafak. Leon, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks and for having me. Come, and I should say to our listeners, come to Facebook. Tell us how you collect and listen to music uh, at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Culture Gab Fest is also brought to you this week by Tracker. Steve, do you ever lose things? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, beginning with my self-esteem and ending with my self-respect. Yeah. I mean, every more day. Like, um, I'm not sure Tracker can help you with those, but more like small, <laughs> misplaceable physical objects. 
Ah, yes, I do do that. Gosh, if only there was something where I could snap my fingers or clap my hands and it would tell me exactly where those little items were. Uh, Steve, Tracker has made your wish its command. It makes losing things a thing of the past. It's a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, and computers, anything you've attached it to in seconds. Pair it to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with the tap of a button. And listeners to Culture Gab Fest get 40% off their first Tracker devices. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code CULTURE. Again, that's thetracker.com, promo code CULTURE. Okay, moving on. The gendering of literature has a long and unhappy history in this country. It has featured, on the one hand, the attempt to denigrate literary pursuits as somehow effeminate, and on the other, uh, ridiculous, to my mind, attempts to butch it all up, to masculinize the enterprise of sitting alone in a room and reading and writing. Now we discover that men are forming book clubs, or so the New York Times tells us. Laura, um, uh, included in the New York Times article about men forming book clubs is uh, some interesting research. It says that 11% of Americans were active in literary, quote, literary discussion or study groups such as book clubs, but that women were more than twice as likely um, to take part in such gatherings as men are. First of all, uh, do you belong to a book club? And second of all, do you think that this is a gendered pursuit and is somehow becoming ungendered? What do you make of all this? I do belong to a book club, and um, it has actually two two men in it, which is quite a trophy for us because <laughs> most book clubs are predominantly female. In fact, some of my book group members listen to the Gab Fest, so um, they'll probably be thrilled to hear it being discussed. Yeah, you know, it's are you like the big gun in your book club? No, because no. you're like the critic. No way, no way. There, my my club has. People who run the editorial divisions of book publishers and stuff oh, like shit. that. So you're um, just like a gadfly on I, the edges. I am. I am. I'm really <laughs> right. just a middling sort of person. Um, Your book yeah. club is giving me high. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, we only read children's literature. Really? Yeah. What other book club could someone like me be in? I need to have books that I can read really, really quickly because I have to read so many for my job. And they're just mostly titles I probably wouldn't be reading anyway. So there's not a lot of overlap with my work. Right. All right. Well, talk to us about the gender dynamics of your book club. And Well, I mean, I don't know that my book club has any overt gender dynamics, but you'd probably have to ask the minority members of it. And, um, and they might tell you a different story. But it's definitely known in the book business that book clubs are predominantly attended by women and formed by women. There are exceptions to that. And it's not actually you know, a big contrast with the book market in general. I mean, most book buyers are women. And when you start to talk about contemporary fiction, it's a significant majority of the people who buy fiction of any kind is is female. So, you know, it's just part of the whole general sense that the average buyer and reader of, of books now is female. So the Times piece... I mean, the Times piece was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It was very deadpan. It highlighted the fact that male book clubs exist and did not make too much of, although I think it is interesting, that many of them make winking reference in their names or customs to the fact that being in an all-male book club is an anomalous and surprising thing to do and be. 
And then beyond that, they just seem like book clubs where they read books and talk about them. Although I was also interested to note that two of the book clubs employ a rating system for their books where they grade the books after they read them, which I've never heard of before. Yeah, and that's the most manly thing about I am them. like not a gender <laughs> essentialist generally. And I'm also someone who likes to keep lists of like all the books I've read and the movies I've been to. And so I, I understand that kind of like tracking impulse. But the notion that you would put a grade on your book club book and then keep track of, of the scores of all your book club book books did seem stereotypically male and clownish to me. <laughs> it, it, Sorry, Steve. It, it does a bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the the book club, the these male book clubs, which are actually kind of, you know, the manly book club, they have these ridiculous titles, which suggests that even the members of them approach it in a pretty campy fashion. It is part of this longstanding anxiety in American culture in particular that sort of literary pursuits, writing or reading are not really sufficiently masculine. You know, personally, I think it has to do with the the idea that America is this country of pioneers and settlers and, you know, you, you need to be a man of action to be a true American and that there's something kind of effeminate about the contemplative writing intellectual life. And so you have to overcompensate by going out and shooting elephants or catching um, a swordfish or whatever it is that um, that y- you need to do to sort of prove your manliness. And it's always presented as this, you know, you're, you're hunting or you're camping or whatever manly things you do are presented as a sort of counterbalance to the literary things you do. And that um, and, and sort of along with that comes a kind of a weird American anxiety about American literature where the idea that the greatest practitioners of American literature, it, it, just for ages it was only men, which is not true of, of England or, or Canada. And just there's a sort of a culture-wide sort of weird nervousness about reading and books and masculinity. And so, you know, these book clubs really just are another iteration of it in my mind. I know that's what I found so strange about it, Laura, because I think of that the that gender neurosis is absolutely characteristically American and characteristic of American literature, totally baleful and ridiculous. But I also thought about it, uh, thought of it as something that we had evolved beyond. I thought it was anachronistic, and then I read this article, and for all its deadpan and tongue in cheek nature, it still is kind of revealing the degree to which. You know, even if these men are in on the joke, and I'm not 100% sure that they 100% are, even in those instances, the need to speak to that stereotype as a means of transcending it made me realize it was much more a living stereotype than I ever suspected. It's, it strikes me as ridiculous that hundreds of years beyond pioneer conditions in this country, there's still this super-gendered notion of um, masculinity and femininity. And, and furthermore, the bizarre association of... Um, of you know, and it's also I, I would go even a step further. I would say that you had this New England culture of gentility and hierarchy that was very Puritan and very aristocratic and anomalous in American life, from which all of American life strayed, except for it at the core. And it's amazing for how long in American history American literature was defined by that very aristocratic, very genteel, very parlor-oriented um, society. And um, and so much of the expansion West, the continental expansion West, was in totally conscious contradistinction to that 
social milieu. So it's sort of against Boston and parts of upper crust New York that it's expressing itself. That strikes me as at least somewhat healthy, but that to this day we're still enacting these paradigms strikes me as fantastical. Well, the other factor that that goes into this is that the the book market is increasingly sort of organized around sort of tastes and affinities so that you don't you're not really encouraged to expand beyond that. So there's also a type of book that everyone in the book business knows is a book group book. And that is, and, and the one that they mention in the piece is like Water for Elephants, which is just like the classic example of the book group book. It, it's set up for groups of sort of older middle class women to talk about, you know, like it's it's got these themes that are seen as of interest to women. I mean, there definitely is a way, is a sort of narrowing of the channel that different readers swim in so that I have a certain amount of sympathy for these guys just because, you know, if they're, you know, there's probably books that they want to read that I would prefer to read to the kind of books that might be more popular in women's book clubs, just because that's my particular taste. But readers tend to be sort of much more uh, able to and encouraged to to sort of limit the range of stuff that they read. And book clubs are part of that. You know, there is a quintessential book club book. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Julia, do you belong to a book club? I do. I love my book club. Is, been, it, uh, is it co-ed? No, I've been in three book clubs, the first of which was co-ed, but it was all like, you know, brown grads when we first graduated and we just didn't recognize gender as anything but a social construct. Um, but the one I'm in now, I adore. We The first book we read was Freedom. And so we've been around since Freedom first came out, which I think is five or six years now. And I love it. And I love it for reasons that have almost nothing to do with literature, which is also the stereotype of women book clubs, which is that you get together and drink wine and talk about your your kids and your lives and you gossip and you talk about real estate and then you ascertain how many people got how far in the book, discuss it for a little bit, and then pick the next book and move on. And I would say that the the um, every fourth book that we read, we have like a really – you know, gnarly, fascinating conversation about the literary merits of it or the themes of it. And honestly, in the last three or four years, most of us have had one or two children. And so I think we're I think we're in it for the long haul and that we will return to a better record of uh, literary engagement with the works. But like right now, it's kind of just like take a break from your life and hang out night with light literary accompaniment. And I adore it. I mean, I'm also very lucky in that I get to talk about culture and its themes and pull apart uh, interestingly constructed works and how they tick and what they say with like my really smart colleagues all day long and on this podcast with you and with the listeners of it in our Facebook page. You know, like my a chunk of my work is like being in a really great book club. So I'm also maybe a, a bad dystopic force in my book club where I'm like, who cares if we get to talk about the book? Um, because I'm spoiled in my professional front that I get to I get to, to do that kind of thinking and talking all the time. But I adore, I adore, I adore my book club and the very smart and wonderful women in it. And I really like it as a gendered space, actually. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. place that it fills in my life, I mean, the place that it fills in my life just specific to me, but but might be representative in ways that are interesting, is that I moved to New York with a large group of women friends who then spread to the 
wins as they went off to pursue graduate degrees in random small university towns and moved for work or whatever. And so I don't I don't have a collective group of girlfriends in New York that I grew up with. And I basically kind of grafted into him with this book group. It's a couple of girls who grew up together in New York and then went off to different colleges and met a bunch of people, some of whom met me. And so I don't have another space in my current New York life where I see in person a group of women and have that dynamic of a group of women interacting and chit-chatting and making each other laugh and sharing their insights and travails about fiction or life or whatever the heck else. And I really like having a space like that. I've always had that in other phases of life, had like a group of really smart women who I hung out with as a group of smart women from time to time. Um, And I love that dynamic. I feel like you do end up talking about like life and how it works and people and how they work among single sex groups of women more often than you do in mixed company and with most men. And not entirely. I mean, I have lots of men with whose psychological insights I admire and value. And I can think of a few particular male friends who it's like really, really fun to dissect personal dynamics with in a way that you think of as more stereotypically male, although some of them are fiction writers. (laughs) Maybe that says something. Um, But, you know, it, 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 like, again, I sort of resist the notion that there should be something gendered about it, but I do find a real value in having that kind of space in my life. And that's part Mm -hmm. of what I love about the group, which is very tangential to the literary function of it. Yeah. And let's be honest, what's the equivalent, the male equivalent, right? It's, it's not a male book group. It's watching sports or something. I mean, poker night, poker night. I mean, these, it's a, it's a tricky Creek to Ford here, right. Or whatever. I mean, it's like kind of on the one hand, you want to say there's something salutary about unlocking a way of speaking among members of your own gender if you're accessing some authentic part of yourself that isn't denigrating of anybody else, right, which I think needs to be quickly added when you're talking about a bunch of guys playing poker or watching sports, right? Um, At the same time that you don't want to essentialize as like part of our you know, nature or our DNA, those qualities in completely rigid gender terms, right? I mean, it's sort of, there should be something healthy about a bunch of guys getting together and doing something, you know, relatively harmless with one another or women having a book club or whatever it is. At the same time, you you just don't want to, you don't want to naturalize and reify these gender roles too much beyond it. But anyway, there's also something to be said, Laura, right, about this notion that Within those constraints, American literature or and literature in general produces extraordinary, extraordinarily subversive and gender subversive writers. I mean, the most obvious one would be Emily Dickinson, who could not have lived a more New England genteel existence, more domestically confined, small bore, um, and in some uh, superficial sense, feminine, and yet was a savage and a cosmic sensibility. I mean, she was in no sense limited by the room um, in which she composed. And similarly, Whitman, who embraces the entire cosmos openly and with a sort of masculine exuberance, was a deeply, deeply feminine writer, right? Well, or, and and maybe would... one of the, one of the, just to finish quickly, the, one of the virtues of a, of a co-ed book club would be understanding the complexity of that yin and yang, which all good literature has to be getting at, regardless of the essentialized identity of the person who produces it. 
I mean, one thing that strikes me about this just subjecting the book group to critical scrutiny in a way that I never really have is like, what a strange cultural thing. Like what a weird, is it like, does it come out of like salon culture from the 19th century? Like, no, I can did... remember when it first, they first really started up, you know, that was like maybe in the 80s, it really became, there was, I, I worked in bookstores and in book publishing off and on and then in journalism for, you know, most of my adult life. And so I can definitely remember there was a point at which it became this thing that everyone was doing. It became like a sort of a cultural trend. And I associate it with the late 80s or the early 90s. I mean, it is fundamentally sort of a self-improvement trend, right? It's like make time in your life uh, for literature, make time in your life for discussion of ideas and close reading and, you know, the kind of academic scrutiny that isn't part of most people's day jobs and finding a way to encounter people you know on a different plane, on an intellectual plane or a critical plane rather than a um, how you do and how the kids plane. And that seems, I mean, it's very, it's like eminently mockable, but it's like a virtuous impulse. I'm also curious, Laura, like what are the prevailing theories for why women, why do women read so much more than men? Well, there are essentialist theories. Um, you know, women in particular read more fiction and now there are all, there are all these sort of quasi, you know, evolutionary psychology type uh, theses and 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 then studies that suggest that one of the reasons why we tell stories about other people is is that it's a major part of the human social impulse to try to uh, imagine, to have a theory of mind of what other people are thinking and what other people are feeling. And there is the idea that women are more interested in that, more interested in knowing what other people are thinking and feeling in certain situations. Whereas the history book club that I mentioned before goes along with the idea that, you know, the stereotype that men are more interested in possessing facts that they, then they can use. It has a, you know, a more sort of knowledge of what happened and what could be done about it and what might be done in the future, whereas it's not as focused on the sort of empathy or trying to imagine yourself in someone else's shoes. And that ten- that's sort of where we are now with why women you know, prefer fiction. That's the going theory. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the going theory. Oh, don't like yeah. that theory, but I can't really contest it. <laughs> I note that the two women on the panel have not asked the one man on the panel whether or not he is. Are in you in a book club? Just assume you're Steve? not. Are you in a book club, Steve? Well, uh, Julia, as it turns out, I'm in the process of constructing a Ooh. book group, uh, out of both men and women uh, friends of mine. The literary and lights of the Upper Hudson? The... You know, the, and you're all um, going to be reading philosophy. Don't no, not at all. No? The principle for inclusion is simply: is the person a, pr- a pretty dedicated reader, and is it someone I want to hang out with and have um, some shard? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, shard and been, chard, presumably. Yes, exactly. And it's been pretty easy to um, think of who those people are, and they all want to do it. And it's just the question of finding time. Um, and also, it's funny that books. There's been no friction about picking books in that sense. The titles, Laura, you'll appreciate this, especially I think some of the early titles that, that for in contention for book number one are Middlemarch, but also We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Ooh. Uh, there are a couple of other really good ones. Um, I can't remember them now. They're, they'll come to me, though. Maybe Stoner. So wrong again, Turner. 
Uh, well, right, as, actually, because I'm not in one yet. But. As usual, as usual. Um, oh, I'm so interested to hear how it goes. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about these groups is like whether and how they gel and and why and what each participant gets out of them and how they function. I mean, they're like these little microcosms of social structures and the, the proportion of each book club that is spent deciding the next book and the, and the next date is always a, yeah. a critical mm-hmm. metric of any book club. All right. Well, um, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us, I mean, I, I would imagine a whopping proportion of our listeners belong to a book club or don't in a way that's um, conscious and pointed, but come and tell us. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback about it. Come and tell us. And also, as you tell us what book club you're in, tell us what is the book you've read in your book club that sparked the most interesting discussion and why. Because that's Mm. one thing that always surprises me Mm -hmm. about mine is like which ones end up begetting. I mean, we'd like such a fascinating conversation about the like novella Animals or the Animals by Justin Torres. And then found like nothing to latch onto in other books that seem much meatier. So we will eagerly await your suggestions and your reflections on why those books were discussionable hits. And perhaps we will avail ourselves of those recommendations we can all share. Absolutely. All right, moving on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Culture Gab Fest is also brought to listeners this week by Ticktail. Ticktail is a fun and easy way to discover emerging brands and interesting designers that you can't find anywhere else. If you are a person who does a lot of online shopping, which is the only way I ever have time to shop when I shop, it can be hard to find new things online, right? You go to a store, you can like, you know, feel all the objects and see all the things and, you know, figure out, oh, I've never heard of this designer or a person who makes stationery or whatever is your or pen manufacturer if you're June Thomas uh, or book imprint, book imprint if you're Laura, you know, you, you can sort of discover. There's a process of discovery in a real life storefront that can be harder online. Online, you can know that your old pair of New Balances wore out and you need a new pair, but you don't necessarily like look at a lot of new sneaker brands, right? So Ticktail is an online marketplace that features emerging designers of clothing, accessories, home decor, and each brand has its own profile page so you get to know the designers behind the products. It's an easy way to discover cool new things. You can even follow other Ticktail shoppers to get inspiration and discover new products from other tastemakers. Go to ticktail.com slash culture to set up your own profile and start discovering independent brands around the world. That's ticktail.com slash culture. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Laura Miller, what do you have? I want to endorse the crime fiction of a writer named Elizabeth Hand. I'm reading her most recent book, which is called Hard Light. And it's in a series of three books so far about a character named Cass Neary, who is just one of my favorite she's she's not even really a detective she's kind of an amateur detective she's just constantly stumbling into these catastrophic situations um, she is really unusual she's a photographer who had a brief flourish of acclaim and success in the New York punk scene of the 1970s. And now she's just sort of um, hanging by a thread in a rent-controlled apartment in the East Village. And then she just embarks on a series of unlikely adventures through these three books as a result of trying to make a little money on the side. And it just really satisfies my desire for a kind of a, a noirish uh, crime story that doesn't rely on the long-standing 
sort of motifs of noir, the sort of, you know, lonely night figure. Uh, Cass is such a mess, but she's also so honest and so sad and so wise and in her fucked up way that I just am such a fan of these books. It, uh, the most recent one is Hard Light, but the first one is called Generation Loss, and the writer is Elizabeth Hand. Mm. So Patty Smith meets Miss Marple. Yes, like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Julia Turner, what do you have? Um, I'm going to endorse something I never thought I would endorse, which is the Internet Outrage Machine. <laughs> What? (laughs) I had a very weird experience. So as previously noted on the show, I spent my few waking hours last week in my fugue of sickness and waiting for the Z-Pack to kick in watching Law & Order SVU, which is I have this thing when I am ill where I don't – you know, there's all this good television. I didn't watch season three of Orange is the New Black. I kind of want to finish watching Jessica Jones. Like there's television of merit. It is on my list that I have not finished, but I like couldn't even achieve the mental standard of watching ter- television of merit. And I find SVU to be like the most despicable of the Law and Orders. I mean, I love Law and Order, but it is exploitative, stupid, lurid. Like the whole premise of it is disgusting. When I first watched it, I remember it aired on Friday nights when I was like a young 20-something in New York and we would call it special titillation unit and like watch it and make fun of it while we, you know, put on our whatever the hell we wore to go out to the bars we were going out to. Um, So I have no, I have like contempt for this show. And yet for some reason... I watched much of season 13, uh, which is weirdly like four seasons ago and where I left off the last time I was sick a year ago. So I'm like very wrapped up in the plot lines of whatever the hell. And I will say one thing about SVU, which is I actually think the whole show is premised on this lurid, disgusting notion of exploiting people's sexual pain for entertainment. But the show is actually kind of thoughtful and careful. Like the writers have clearly been thinking really seriously about sexual assault and the set of issues around it for 14 years now. And so the the show typically is actually more responsible and nuanced than you would expect in handling the storylines that it uses, which are cheap and exploitative. So I was garnering new respect for the show when I came upon an episode where there was a very familiar looking guest star. And then I realized that that guest star was Mike Tyson. And I just thought, how could they fucking have had an episode where Mike Tyson, convicted rapist, played someone? And the character that he played was a murderer, not a rapist, but a murderer who had been convicted with a negligent counsel who failed to introduce evidence suggesting that the person he murdered was a pedophile who had abused him as a child. So he played someone who had been wrongly convicted. And the plot of the episode was his exoneration. Spoiler alert for four years ago, SVU people. Um, And I, in general, find the internet outrage machine tiresome and a reductive way to talk about things. I found myself very legitimately offended that this show, which has made a 15-year mint of telling the stories of victims of sexual abuse, would engage in a piece of stunt casting where they cast a convicted rapist and then allowed him to play a role in which he was exonerated of a past crime and had a bunch of emotional scenes about his, you know, how you should really put his guilt in context. It just seemed disgusting and put the show back into the camp of like lurid exploitative horribleness. And I thought, how did nobody get outraged about this? But then I Googled it and the internet did. The internet got outraged about it. There was a petition. Lots of people signed it. NBC moved the air date so that it wasn't on the eve of some kind of rape awareness day. They ran it eight days off of that, which I guess was better. Uh, and the ratings were strikingly low. 
an unusually low rated episode Mm. of the show because people were concerned about this casting choice. And, you know, one of the things we discovered when we did our Internet Outrage package, you know, as much as we were kind of shaking our fists at the reductiveness and redundancy of it, one thing the Internet Outrage machine has done is allow people to point out when people in positions of institutional and cultural power make totally bullshit decisions. And uh, <laughs> and people did. So that is the entire sum of the cultural thoughts I had during my fugue state last week. <laughs> and now I have shared them with you in the guise of an endorsement on to you, Steve. fever dream. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anything, my endorsement is only more absurd than yours. Um, Not possible. I'm, I'm here to promote to our listeners a little TV show called Transparent. Ah, intriguing. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I after five years, uh, you know, buried under a manuscript, I finally burrowed my way out, only to watch a shit ton of TV that I missed out on on the first time. And I'm digging it. I mean, I'm really, really digging it. And we had done. I mean, I will say this is sort of an indictment of, if not our show, certainly of its host. I mean, because I, you know, there are just there are just those times where we're going to give an opinion on the pilot of a television show and it it just never behooves anyone to do that right i mean you just don't know what's next and i finally went back and finished the first season of um transparent i mean it's it's among a handful of the best tv shows i think i've ever seen i really think she's doing something kind of unique i mean i i get that people love it Uh, many people say the second season's even better which is mind-blowing to me and people have praised to the uh, to the skies Jeffrey Tambor's uh, performance, which is just Nobel worthy. I mean, they've got to invent a new category. <laughs> the Swedes have to convene and invent a new category, and award Tambor, you know, uh, something for for his performance. But through and through, just the humanity of it, and the intelligence of it, and the balance of um, a satire on these, you know, irredeemably narcissist children, but with a kind of kindness and gentleness and and warmth about how human beings destroy themselves and 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 destroy their own possibility of happiness it seems extremely true to me in that regard it's just a, it's just the absolutely brilliant television show on every level the writing the directing and the performances are extraordinary i just was floored i i knew it was good i had heard it was great and i think it's beyond even how it's been described to me i mean um anyway i love the show um laura thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really fun thanks uh, Julia, as always, a total pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Lindsay Albrecht and Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And the Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network, so we guess we all work for Andy. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Laura Miller, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. We didn't get wet, we didn't die Our aspiration